Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Shir Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we bring to you a new book in the field of Islamic studies, and we chat with its author. In her fascinating new book, The Politics of Islamic Law, Local Elites, Colonial Authority, and the Making of the Muslim State, Isa Hussain, lecturer of politics at the University of Cambridge, examines the transformation of Islamic law in colonial Malay, Egypt, and India. Combining archival, institutional, and political history, this book charts in staggering detail the centralization of Islamic law in the shadow of colonial power during and after its attempted marginalization in Muslim societies. Much of this book is focused on explaining this apparent paradox, a task that it achieves with convincing clarity. By presenting a nuanced and complicated picture of the interaction of colonial power and the colonized elite, Hussein offers a narrative of the making and remaking of Islamic law in modernity that will delight the intellectual palate of specialists and non-specialists alike. Here is my conversation with Professor Isa Hussein. Hello Isa, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you Shirley. Uh, well, it's uh, such a pleasure to have you on this show and uh, to have read uh, your book. As I was saying before, we uh, started recording this conversation that this is uh, such a multi-layered and an extensive uh, uh, book that we'll try to scratch the surface of today in our conversation. But our uh, first question on new books in Islamic studies is always uh, biographical. Uh, mm-hmm. Isa, could you share with our listeners uh, a bit about your narrative, uh, how you became a scholar of Islam, scholar interested in Islam and Muslim societies? Um, it's a tricky question to answer. I think that uh, the answer will change. And I certainly don't think of myself as a scholar of Islam so much as somebody who's who's got some pressing questions about how contemporary Muslims and um, Islamic texts are thought of today. And that, of course, begins with, for me, having grown up in various parts of the Muslim world and then having come as an undergraduate to take classes in Islamic studies from people like Leila Ahmed and Rob Wisnowski and um, Jamal Kafadar um, and to realize uh, that the world in which we were being, uh, the world they were describing and the, the world of Islamic doctrine and uh, Muslim texts didn't quite resemble the world in which I grew up. Uh, and so as, as, um, <laughs> as you know, the nerdy undergraduate and graduate student generally does, I went into the library and looked for the shelf that would explain how we got from the ninth to the tenth and the ninth and the tenth centuries of the common era into the contemporary period. Um, and that shelf at the time, uh, seemed very short. Um, and so the, the dissertation and most of my graduate work uh, leading up to the mid-2000s was about trying to figure out this question of 
why the difference uh, between the texts and uh, the imaginary of contemporary Islam and what the institutional underpinnings of that imaginary are? So let me uh, begin, uh, Isa, with a question which is, I think, rather unfair for a book which has so many intersecting uh, themes and and, 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 uh, complexities. But could you share with our listeners uh, briefly, what would you describe as the central argument and intervention that you see this book making? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it's, it begins as a provocation, one that we think of Islamic law as having a politics and that we open up the conversation to thinking about Islamic law as having a politics, to considering it as a, an arena for struggle, as a historical construction in particular times and places, and as being fundamentally different as many, many scholars have said, from the Sharia itself, right? So we're talking about, in my particular case, um, Islamic law as an institutional configuration born of the 18th and the 19th centuries that is fundamentally different institutionally, textually, and uh, in meaning from um, uh, the jurisprudence of folk, as well as um, the sort of classical texts of the Sharia. And the fundamental argument is that we look, as we're trying to trace this genealogy of uh, contemporary Islamic legal institutions and the law, um, beyond textuality and doctrine and into the places where the law was performed, so courtrooms and diplomatic courts, uh, to thinking about its cultural life and to thinking about the ways in which Islamic law was formed as a product of um, colonial struggle and colonial encounter. Um, the second part of that argument also has to do with um, taking seriously the um, more recent history of uh, Islamic jurisprudence and Islamic law and Islamic legal institutions in our discussions of um, Islamic law today. And so the historical conditions under which um, Islamic law was formed in Malaysia, in Egypt, in India and Pakistan, are inextricable from their contemporary forms and politics. Um, and I think the third has to do with the ways in which scholars of Islamic law, of Sharia and of Muslim politics may have something to say to um, broader, more general scholarship on the state, on colonialism and empire, on religion and politics, and on law in and of itself, um, such that we do not consider ourselves a subset of, uh, you know, religious studies or uh, a particular vein of comparative law, but are deeply, deeply enmeshed in these conversations about state formation, modernity, imperialism, and the post-colonial. So, Isa, one of the uh, key interventions that this book makes uh, has to do with uh, how you conceptualize the relationship between uh, colonial power and the colonized elite in the context uh, that you study. And uh, that's, of course, a question that many scholars of colonialism and Islamic law have also wrestled with. Uh, so could you uh, share with us some of the highlights of that larger argument of what kind of a conceptualization you offer in this book sure. in thinking about that relationship? Yeah, um, let me sort of sketch out sort of th- three of the colonial local elite encounters that are part of the book. And the first one that I begin with is 
the the struggle, negotiation, and mutual recognition between British colonial officials and agents um, and uh, local sovereigns and elites um, in in Malaya, for example. So when the British arrive uh, in the independent Malay states in the 1870s, one of the things that starts to become clear is that they intervene in local power struggles to such an extent that the elevation of one um, local elite chief as the sultan of the state of Perak, which is now in Malaysia, happens as a result of his ability to ally with the British in a way that is productive for his power as well as for theirs. And so one of the points about local and colonial elite uh, relationships is that during the colonial period in India, in Egypt, in Malaya, and in many other places, as people uh, such as Mohammed Mamdani have pointed out as well, um, this the, the way in which some elites find, um, if not common cause, structural and uh, institutional opportunities in colonialism for themselves is significant for the story that comes after. Um, and the what is now known as the Pankor Engagement, which is the first document of... Um, Treaty negotiation between the, what would, what would later become, uh, the Federated Malay States and, uh, the British Crown sets in place the role of the Sultan, uh, of Pera as, um, sovereign over matters of Malay custom and religion, Islam. And so the, the colonial, um, encounter begins to carve out a place of local elite autonomy over Islam, which is new in the Malay states. A second vignette has to do with, um, you know, skips forward uh, to India in the late 1880s, um, to the appointment of the first generation of Muslim judges uh, to the courts of British colonial India. And the ways in which Muslim judges who are appointed to the bench in India act as two institutional um, figures at the same time. On the one hand, they are fully employed as members of the judiciary of the crown. But on the other hand, the, one of the reasons why they are as important as and, and as influential is because of their ability to perform interlocutory roles between Islamic texts, Muslim societies, and British justice. And so the role of um, colonial institutions in recruiting um, local Muslim elites to speak for Islam and to speak to Muslims is also an incredibly important part of this history and genealogy of Islamic law, such that um, people like um, Judge Sayyid Mahmoud of the, in the 1880s, who um, uses his position um, in the high courts as a kind of interpretive um, lens between British justice and uh, Islamic texts and Muslim practice in India. And so the second of those uh, relationships has to do with the crucial role of Muslim elites, not just as intermediaries, but also as um, translators, interlocutors, amplifiers, and constructors of what then becomes Islamic law. I think the third has um, possible way of thinking about the colonial-local relationship is the sort of ironic 
one in which even elites who resist and oppose the colonial agenda of reformation, well, reformation of Islam and Islamic law, have to be recognized before the courts and be recognized by local um, colonial officials in order to make their resistance legible. And so even at the moment of resistance, of uh, talking back to the law, um, you, you see elites um, over and over again having to um, acquiesce to some of the categories, language and institutions of colonial sovereignty in order to resist it. And so there's also that um, kind of uh, double-edged sword um, of Muslim elites working within the colonial system that at, at one and the same time, uh, their resistance reinforces the very institutions they're attempting to push back against. Now, one of the uh, uh, things that comes across uh, quite early in your book is that you're dissatisfied with some of the conceptualizations of Islam, law, and the state uh, in the the field of political science, especially. Um, I was wondering if you could share with our reader, with our listeners, um, what are the problems that you identify uh, in the, these conceptualizations in political science, and what kinds of alternatives do you offer in this book? Probably one of the things I should have said also at the beginning of the um, book in the part is that not a provocation of substance, but it's also an invitation um, uh, to have a conversation about Islam and Muslim politics that's informed by incredibly rich material that's being scholars in anthropology and history and Islamic law and comparative law, um, as well as in political science and sociologies. So um, for me, the, the project is, is an inherently eclectic and slightly Catholic one. Um, and so um, one of the things that political scientists um, in particular have had difficulty with over the last couple of decades is how to deal with concepts whose meanings are in flux at the time that we study them, not just for the people, the subjects of our study, but also for the moments in which they're being um, discussed and for the scholarly moment we occupy as well. So one of the things that's reasonably clear is that in the 1870s in Malaya to say state didn't mean what we tend to take it as meaning, right? So that there's a way in which the, the moment I'm discussing is a moment in which all of these constellations of concepts are coming into being in a way that then is naturalized over the next 150 years, um, but isn't immediately obvious at the time. So state, law, religious, secular, public, private, um, political, social. And so the, the, the first of these kind of push, pushes back um, the reasonably stable vocabulary of political science um, in order to try and get at these um, concepts as as concepts in flux um, and and as it, and the colonial encounter itself particularly the, the encounter between colonial governments and Islam as being um, one theater and laboratory in which they come to be verified and solidified and um, normalized. Um, law in particular, I think political scientists continue to have a great deal of trouble with, um, in part because 
because we are by tradition and by inclination generally formalists, right? So when we study constitutions, we study the texts of these constitutions. Uh, when we interrogate them, we interrogate the distance between the text and their practice. But what I think is important is the very process of constitutional drafting, who gets to be in the room, um, which other constitutions are being thought of, and the theatre of uh, concepts and politics in which this entire thing is coming into being matter a great deal. And we're just starting to, frankly, catch up with uh, many other fields in which this is uh, a kind of skepticism skepticism to the text and the claims that the law makes about itself um, have already come to the fore. And so Law, I think, is is one place um, where that's very much the case. I think another possibility is to consider long-term historical institutional change and how we think as political scientists, political theorists, intellectual historians, but also scholars of Islam, um, how we talk about subjects such as Islamic law, um, which by necessity have shifted in meaning over a very broad uh, swath of time, um, and how we think about long-term institutional change in general uh, within our fields. I think the last is a methodological point as much as an analytic one um, to do with um, the influence of scholars such as Brinkley Masek and Talal Assad for the ways in which we think about text, discourse, materiality and meaning and to read, for me, to read Muslim politics through a multiplicity of transformations that spiral into each other. So text, code, discourse, institutions, politics. Um, and political scientists tend to choose amongst these. Um, and I think that perhaps um, considering the ways in which uh, politics and um, institutions works with or sometimes against each other um, is important. So, Isa, your book is primarily focused on the Malaya context, but you also, uh, uh, the, the, the idea of comparison also is quite central uh, to the project uh, mm-hmm. because you also bring in perspectives from colonial Egypt and uh, India. Uh, I was wondering, could you share with our listeners how did you approach the idea of comparison and what is the relationship between these three different uh, contexts? Yes, of course. Um, but the, the, the impetus to comparison began... Um, as an archival, a response to archival experience. I was um, looking for the experiences of Malays and Malay elites um, in British colonial contexts around the 1870s onwards. Um, And it started to become very clear that by the time the British arrive in Malaya, India is foremost in their minds as a model and a laboratory for considering um, ways to govern Muslims, ways to work with the law, um, the, the, the place of religion in the native imagination. And so all of these very clearly um, require a conversation between Malaya and India. And I think that that conversation continues to be important and continues to be important in part because of the rising importance of India and South Asia in the scholarship um, on Islam, Islamic law, and Muslim politics in general. Um, and so one of the benefits of that comparison is that it decenters uh 
Arabo-Islamic and Arabic um, as the central uh, theatre for discussing Islam and Islamic law. It also became clear that the 1870s were a moment in which um, there were multiple circulations in play, um, not just of colonial officials who were coming from India to Malaya and Egypt to secure both ends of the Suez trade. So when the Suez Canal uh, opens, you know, the, the there is a need to rationalize and order Egypt um, in particular, but also the other end of the Suez trade, which is passing through the Straits of Malacca between um, Johor and Singapore. And so there's that circulation, but there's also an increased circulation between um, Muslim states within Muslim networks, uh, such that it's very clear also that people aren't static at this time, not, nor are institutions or ideas. And so the, the, the major impetus towards comparison was to make clear that, that this was a world in motion. I think the second impetus towards comparison has to do um, with making clear that this is not a classic political science study in which India, Malaya and Egypt are parallel independent cases whose joint discussion then reveals um, commonalities and generalizabilities because of their independence. It isn't their independence that's important here, it is their connectedness and their variation in a world of interconnection. So that's the the second piece. And I think the 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 last is the ways in which it was clear also, um, certainly between the 1850s and into the uh, pre-World War I period, that Muslim elites were looking at each other's experiences um, to think about how to counter colonialism, how to work with um, colonial systems, and how to um, express local Muslim ideas in legible, um, institutional, and discursive forms. And so there's a great deal of looking back and forth going on within the theatre of India, Malaya, and Egypt um, that wouldn't be captured by uh, static comparison. Let me, uh, uh, with your permission, is a transition to one of the major arguments of this book, which I thought mm-hmm. was a very interesting and fascinating argument that is very convincingly made, which is you argue that the attempted marginalization of Islamic law during the colonial uh, moment uh, uh, generated the conditions for the centralization of Islamic law at the same time. So there is this interesting mm-hmm. uh, sort of juxtaposition of um, uh, marginality and centrality happening rather simultaneously. Could you explain this central argument of the book? How do the two go together? Sure. Well, the marginalization argument we were quite familiar with, right? So, um, the you know scholars such as Wa'il Halak um, have have spoken about colonization's impact on the Muslim world, not only um, in terms of uh, the 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 application of Islamic law and um, the place of Muslim institutions, but also on the, on the entire ecosystem of Islam centered on institutions of learning, uh, economics and law. And so for scholars like Halak, who use uh, terms such as dual colonization, there is absolutely devastation um, across the Muslim world in these institutions of learning and law. But 
I argue that that's not the end of the story and that this devastation is for some institutions, for some elites and for some variations of Islamic law quite productive. And that's the the second half, the second movement of the book um, in which um, it's not that this new space um, of Islamic law, it is very much, um, you know, a... a truncated space. It's a much smaller space. It's a much more circumscribed space, um, largely over the domains of ritual observance, um, what we've now come to call personal status and family law, and the area of what, what we have now also come to understand as privacy. There is, even in that circumscribed area, room and resource for powerful challenges to the colonial state, for continued articulation of the meaning and utility of the Sharia, and in fact, for new and political uh, political and intellectual commitments to the Sharia in the modern period. So the, the re-centralization of this limited, marginalized domain happens in the symbolic sphere, In India, for example, through the conceit of um, the British ruling um, with a mandate from the Mughals, um, but also in terms of an understanding by the Malay sultans that they were sovereign over um, an an autonomous domain of religion and custom, um, such that religion, ritual observance, and this uh, truncated domain become elevated to uh, the core traditional essence of Islam, which is a core traditional essence we see defended in the Muslim world today as traditional. And so it's, it's symbolically centralized in a way that I think was new for the period um, and continues to be um, incredibly important for the authority, the legitimization and the kind of institutional claim that Islam has on the modern nation state. Um, And that, I think, is the newness um, of Islamic law in the contemporary period um, and certainly after the 1850s that, in effect, Islam has become a state good, uh, delivered through the law in very specific domains, and that at the same time that it's become this limited good, it's also become the sort of sine qua non of what it means to be Islamic, what it means to be a Muslim state, and that Muslims themselves, Muslim elites in particular, protect that domain as if it were their own. And it has become their own in very, very important ways, but it has not always been the case. Another very intriguing category that you introduce towards the end of your book is what you call the paradox of Islamic law uh, in uh, post-colonial contexts like that of Malaysia. Uh, Mm. Could you explain a bit what do you mean by this idea of the paradox of Islamic law and how is this paradox connected to the story that you tell throughout the book about uh, the remaking of Islamic law during the colonial moment? Uh, you address this question with reference to some apostasy cases that you examine quite brilliantly uh, uh, in your book. So could you speak a bit about this theme of your of your book, The Paradox of Islamic Law? Yes, of course. I mean, the word paradox sometimes gives, you know, takes as much as it gives. And so the, I think readers will have to decide for themselves whether it's the right term. Um, but the, it is this dynamic of 
institutional marginalization and symbolic centralization, which continues to do work in the courts of contemporary Malaysia, Pakistan, India, and Egypt, in which, um, and scholars such as Tamar Mustafa and Hussein Agrama have spoken about this in uh, in the cases of Malaya and Egypt, Malaysia and Egypt as well, that there is um, in contemporary court cases on uh well, that begin with the question of religious identity and the ability of a Muslim to convert out of Islam in Malaysia. On the one hand, the state sees itself and speaks of itself as being secular in the sense that it doesn't interfere in matters of belief. It doesn't interfere in matters of religious identity of individuals. It cannot um, arbitrate Uh, confessional matters, and it treats its subjects and citizens even-handedly with regard to their relationship to their faith. So on the one hand, Malaysia is avowedly a secular state in that sense. On the other hand, you know, the constitution does state that Islam is the religion of the federation. And so that has led to some recent entanglements in the courts. And the entanglements are revelatory, I think, of ways in which um, Islamic law has no longer become a problem for courts to solve. It is a site of production of powerful politics whose solution is nowhere in sight. Um, And so, you know, the paradox of Islamic law in which I, I talk about the sort of genealogy of the present as marginalization and centralization plays itself out in courts in Malaysia, Pakistan, and Egypt, um, also because it's produced by tensions in the durable forms of these states, in law, in language, in institutional jurisdiction, um, as well as in the shifting opportunities and resources of the, the political life of the state on a daily basis. But when we think about the cases themselves, um, the paradox endures because it continues to be productive of resources, tangible as well as symbolic, that groups use in order to attempt to capture a dominant share of the state and its power. And so I look at two, two cases, and there are so many to choose from in Malaysia, in which the singular problem with regard to the place of Muslims is that Malaysia is one of the only, if not the only place in the world where an ethnic Malay is defined as being someone who practices the religion of Islam as well as, you know, is culturally Malay, is born to Malay parents and speaks the Malay language. Um, And so this definition of Malay is in the constitution that, that Islam is the religion of the state is in the constitution, but also in the constitution is the guarantee to religious freedom for all citizens. When this plays itself out in contemporary Malaysia, the courts have consistently found that Muslims have fewer rights for religious freedom than others, not because of their religion or the religion of the state, but because of their ethnicity. So a Malay cannot convert out of Islam because they are Malay and the constitution defines them as Muslim. And and this is a not that the courts have consistently neither been willing or able to untie. But the knot itself is politically and uh, symbolically powerful.
awful. It's a way that it's unlikely that the courts ever will untie it. So we'll see how this plays out. But my point about paradox is that at times it seems as though these paradoxes that confront courts and governments are policy problems to be dealt with, when in fact they are arena of struggle and politically productive uh, in enduring ways. So, Isa, as we're coming to, uh, to the end of our uh, conversation, uh, could you share with us a bit about what's the next project? What are you working on uh, now? Sure. The um, There's a, a person who sort of surfaces towards the end of the book um, who has become the sort of center of my intellectual life for, for quite some time now. Um, he's the sovereign of the southernmost state of Malaysia, Johor, and he brings um, into being the um, the first constitution in Southeast Asia in 1895, as well as being one of the only places outside of the Ottoman Empire to adopt the Majalla in the 1893. Um, and so the, the second um, project that I'm working on has to do with the ways in which this particular intersection of law, the Majalla and the constitution, reveals a kind of global topography of Asian sovereigns faced with imperial uh, challenges from European powers, all looking at the law as a way to consolidate their sovereignty, while at the same time finding that the law has its own kind of dynamic and politics. And so um, the book is tentatively called Circulations of Law, and it's about how law travels and how law travels not only in constitutional texts, but also in uh, fashion and diplomacy and scandal and news. And it's about... um, the universality of law being one of its um, major um, mobilizing forces, but the locality of law being the place where its politics uh, happens and how important it is to pay attention not just to law as diffused uh, or transmitted, but law as carried, you know, in briefcases on ships alongside commodities with people, uh, translatable uh, requiring onward mobilization in order to be um, as movable as we suspect it is. The Politics of Islamic Law, Local Elites, Colonial Authority and the Making of the Muslim State by Isa Hussein, published by uh, University of Chicago Press in 2016. Thank you so much, Isa, for this conversation, for your time and uh, for such uh, a wonderful book that I'm sure will Uh, provoke and generate uh, conversations and discussions and debates uh, for some time to come. Uh, This is a book that uh, people will uh, have to contend with uh, who think seriously about questions of Islamic law, colonialism, and Islam in the modern period. So thank you so much, Isa. I very much appreciate your time. Thank you so much. So this was my conversation with Isa Hussain about her new book, The Politics of Islamic Law. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of our podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. Stay well, take care, and until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off from New Books in Islamic Studies.